You are listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit brockportfirstbaptist.org. The second reading is Matthew 5, 1 through 7. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mount, up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Good morning again, everyone. So one thing you should know about me, one thing you can probably tell by looking at me, um, is I'm a child of the 80s. I know I risk dating myself saying that. But I am. I'm a child of the 80s. I was born in the 80s. Uh, My very earliest memories are from the 80s. Uh, A lot of the media I was exposed to at a very young age, the music, the movies, the TV shows, were all from the 1980s. Um, And I think it might be because of that, that when I hear our, our key verse this morning, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, my mind immediately jumps to the most logical place, the Karate Kid trilogy. You guys know the Karate Kid? Who here, who here is familiar with the Karate Kid? That's pretty good. That's a lot better than Monty Python a few weeks ago. Um, Yeah, The Karate Kid has to be one of the greatest movies ever made, right? Uh, It's a true underdog story about this bullied kid named Daniel, maybe why I'm a little partial to it. Um, He's getting beat up, but he teams up with a kindly old maintenance man named Mr. Miyagi, who just happens to be a karate master. Uh, to take on the evil Cobra Kai dojo. It's a tale as old as time. But when I think of mercy, there's a very specific scene I think of from those movies, and it's actually from the sequel, Karate Kid Part 2, which I think we'd all agree is the real high point of the series. Um, Karate Kid Part 2 begins immediately after the end of Part 1. So right after the end of the first movie, They're still in the parking lot after the tournament where Daniel's son beat the bully from Cobra Kai Dojo, right? And in the clip I want to show you this morning, the clip we're going to take a look at in a moment, it's still in that parking lot, and the evil sensei from Cobra Kai, the bad guy, is confronting his student, the bully who lost to Daniel in the the previous movie. And um, as a quick disclaimer before we watch this clip, um, there's some violence in this scene. It's the Karate Kid, um, but, and, and it's pretty intense. Um, and there's also a bit of blood. So if you're anything like me and you get squeamish at the sight of blood, I want to tell you about a little trick I've learned. You close your eyes and you repeat to yourself, it's only cornstarch and food coloring. It's only cornstarch and food coloring. Can we do that? Okay, good. Uh, let's watch the clip. What did you say? I said I did my best. You're nothing. You lost. You're a loser. No, you're the loser, man. Oh, I'm the loser, huh? Yeah. 
Now who's a loser? You know, you're really sick, man. Hey! Hey, come on! Uh, hey! What are you don't! Doing? How does second place feel now, huh? Come on, he can't breathe! Mind your business! You're gonna kill him! Sensei, please! You're hurting him! He's sorry, okay? He really is! Oi! Let him go! Beat him! Or you're next! you, he is enemy. Enemy deserve no mercy. Danielson. <laughs> Isn't that just the best, though? That's amazing. Mr. Miyagi is my hero, I swear. Um, now, a couple things that are interesting about that clip. When Mr. Miyagi says, mercy is for the weak, we do not train to be merciful here, he's actually quoting that evil sensei to himself. That's the line that the Cobra Kai instilled in the bad guys and their students in the previous film. What's also interesting about this clip, though, is it's one of the only instances I can think of from modern movies where mercy is portrayed as a virtue. Think about any movie you've ever seen where there's a good guy and a bad guy. How often does the climax of the film see mercy being extended to the villain? The good guy wins, rides off into the sunset, having resolved his conflict peacefully with the, the hero and the villain, both becoming better people through the whole experience. That, that's not how it goes. We don't pay 12 bucks for a movie ticket to see the bad guy become a better person or learn their lesson. No, the bad guy gets punished. The bad guy gets killed. The bad guy gets a taste of their own medicine, and it's the hero who gives it to them. No mercy. This is pretty pervasive stuff. Um, this attitude is very deeply rooted in our culture. And I'm not immune to this stuff, by the way. It, it affects me, too. Um, I'm a big comic book fan. Um, and in fact, I recently discovered that there is an awesome comic book shop on Main Street, whichever direction Main Street is, that way, um, that I'm going to be spending time at. Um, but one of the comic books that I grew up reading was The Punisher. We've actually got a picture. This, this is The Punisher. Um, as you can probably imply from the name, he punishes people. Real name is Frank Castle. He's a retired soldier with a large arsenal and a single goal, to hunt down and kill criminals. This was the stuff I was reading when I was a kid. And it's pretty sick if you think about it for a few minutes. But we eat this stuff up. We love this stuff. Americans spend millions of dollars every year 
on movies, video games, other media, centered around good guys punishing bad guys. Not teaching them lessons, not reforming them or showing mercy, killing them, executing them. And this wouldn't be such a big deal if it was limited to, like, media, right? If this was just a movie and comic book thing. But it bleeds into other areas of our collective lives as well. Art imitates life, or or maybe it's the other way around. You will never see a candidate for judge or any other elected office campaigning on their record of being merciful. That would not be a selling point for voters. That's not what we want. We want leaders who hold the bad guys accountable, lock them up, throw away the key. Our culture is suspicious of mercy. We've bought into the idea that mercy is for the weak, that extending mercy to a villain, to a criminal, is irresponsible, maybe even unjust. And this this attitude permeates the church as well. Churches are known for a lot of things, but mercy is probably not very high on the list. Think about how quick churches can be to excommunicate people, to cut them off when they violate some norm or go astray, or, or screw up in some way, especially leaders. This is why you might not feel safe to truly be yourself when you come through these doors. This is why we stay on our best behavior in here and avoid being too open or too honest. This is why we hide the darker sides of ourselves when we're in church, because the last thing any of us would expect if the people sitting next to us in the pew knew the real us is mercy. And Jesus subverts all of this when he blesses the merciful. There's like firecrackers going off outside or something. That's good. Um, Jesus subverts all of this, but it's not just, this is not just an issue with our culture. This goes deep. This goes way back. Jesus is undermining an idea that has shaped countless cultures around the world for centuries. And that's the myth of redemptive violence. Go ahead, a couple, a couple of things. I think I've got, it just says myth of redemptive violence. It's not there. Um, We're going to talk about myths together in here a lot. Um, Myth has kind of a negative connotation in our culture, and the myth of redemptive violence is a bad one. Uh, It's particularly nasty, but myths are just the stories that shape our imaginations. There are good myths. There are true myths. There are myths that are truer than true, more real than reality itself. Myths that actually lose their truthfulness if we take them too literally. But there are also untrue myths. There are false myths, lies. Myths that are destructive and contribute to violence and exploitation in our world. And the myth of redemptive violence falls squarely in this category. The myth of redemptive violence is the idea that violence can actually be a good thing as long as it's used by the right people against the right people. That the only way to respond to the violence of someone bad is through violence of our own. The only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. You've probably heard this kind of stuff before. The myth of redemptive violence doesn't have much time for mercy or restorative forms of justice, rehabilitating criminals, restoring relationships between victims and perpetrators. No, 
The only form of justice this myth understands is punitive. You took something from someone else, so we're going to take something from you. Maybe it's your freedom, maybe it's your possessions, maybe it's even your life. The myth of redemptive violence is how the United States, a country that makes up less than 5% of the world's population, holds 22% of the world's prisoners. And let's not even get started on how liberally we use things like the death penalty compared to other countries. The myth of redemptive violence shapes our culture, our entertainment, our justice system, and many of our churches leaving very little room for mercy. But throughout his teaching, Jesus rejects this myth. He extends mercy to sinners, mercy to his enemies. And he exposes the true nature of violence as being cyclical. The myth of redemptive violence gets something wrong. It assumes that answering violence with violence will end the violence, but it doesn't work that way. Violence escalates violence. The bad guy hits you, you hit back, they hit back harder. As Jesus put it, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Violence begets violence. The only way to break this cycle is by extending mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. This beatitude emphasizes one of the few similarities between mercy and violence. Both are cyclical. Both reinforce each other and build upon each other. There's a reciprocity in this blessing. Those who give mercy will receive mercy, and I think it works just as well the other way. Those who have received mercy and learn from the experience are far more likely to show mercy to others. And that's where our context makes this beatitude a tricky one to put into practice. We are starving for mercy as a people. It's a foreign concept to many of us. I bet there are people here who could give us stories about times you were denied mercy by someone. I know I can do that. I got picked on a lot as a kid. Um, I was scrawny way back in the day, believe it or not. Um, I wasn't very well coordinated. I read comic books. Um, And I could tell you stories of how merciless the kids who picked on me were. About times I had bleach sprayed in my face or had knives pulled on me. Times I was jumped on the way home from school by four or five students who beat me so mercilessly I had to crawl the rest of the way home. Suddenly all these scary tattoos make sense, huh? (laughs) Uh, In a world like ours, where there is so much violence, where mercilessness is so often the norm, it's very difficult to practice mercy. I know I want to see the bad guys punished. I know I have it in me to fly off the handle if I'm threatened. So how do we break this cycle? How do we get out of this? How do we learn to embody mercy in our daily lives and and resist this myth of redemptive violence that so shapes our minds, our imaginations? Well, for one, I think mercy has to be something we practice. Practice makes perfect. You You can't wish yourself merciful. You can't flip a switch and just decide to become a more merciful 
person. You have to practice this stuff. You have to try it. You have to adopt actual things you can do concretely to embody mercy. A good first step might be to limit your exposure to violence. Um, There are movies I used to watch almost religiously that I don't get to watch that often anymore. And one thing that's helpful is I have a (laughs) three-year-old, which makes it it easy. Um, But there are certain conversations, certain places, maybe even certain toxic people that, that you know will trigger you to behave in a less than merciful way. And maybe it is time to cut some of those things off, to limit your exposure, to identify violent patterns, structures, or triggers that make you behave without mercy and distance yourself. Opt out of the cycles of violence that so dominate our daily lives. And like that's a good first step, but it's not quite enough, right? That's like a negative step. That's not so much a practice as it is something I'm not going to practice. But there are plenty of actual practices we can do to start to rewire our brains around mercy. And this is where it's helpful to remember that cyclical nature of mercy. For all the stories I can tell you of being beaten up with, uh, after school, I can also tell you some great stories of times I was in the wrong. Times I acted rashly and had mercy extended to me. So one way to rewrite our programming on this might be to reflect on those instances that we've received mercy. Meditate on those experiences. Think about one right now. A time that someone showed you mercy. Take that to God in prayer. Talk to a therapist about it. Uh, Maybe create some sort of a physical reminder of a time you received mercy and put it somewhere where you're going to see it daily to push back against that cycle of mercilessness and violence and break in a little bit of mercy. And a crucial next step to begin practicing mercy is to actually extend mercy to others. This is the hard one. Forgiving the coworker who wronged you. Um, extending mercy to a stranger who's nasty to you in the supermarket. Be on the lookout, like deliberately, to, for opportunities to extend mercy, and I guarantee you they will present themselves. One of the great things about our faith is that it's centered on practices. Things like baptism, worship, confession, that help us to center our minds and our lives on Jesus. And one of the practices is something we're going to be doing in a couple of minutes. Communion. The table. It's a practice that should help center us on mercy. On the cross, Jesus was subjected to our own lack of mercy. Jesus became one of the countless innocent victims to the myth of redemptive violence. But on the cross, Jesus does something interesting. He responds to our violence with a startling act of mercy, asking God to forgive his executioners, submitting to death so that the very people who were crucifying him could find life. May this communion table serve as a first step this morning toward embodying mercy in our own lives.
Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the mercy of your Son. Empower us to see the communion table not only as a chance to remember his sacrifice, but an opportunity to embody his mercy as well. Amen.